Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. have not been with us here at Ridgeline, we're in the midst of a teaching series uh, through the New Testament uh, letter of 1 Peter. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, I'll meet you there in just a second. We've called this series Exiles, as that is what Peter is helping us trying to learn how to be, to live as exiles in a land that ultimately uh, is not our home uh, and does not function according to God's uh, way that he created it to. And so we have to learn as followers of Jesus to live in the midst of that. So we come back to it this morning. And to start, uh, I want you to just think about a time when you have been treated unjustly. Think about a time in your life when you have been treated unjustly. So maybe you've been treated in a way uh, that you did not deserve by someone. Uh, Maybe you have been uh, penalized at work when you have really only tried to do your best. Maybe as a kid you were punished for something that you didn't do. Uh, I wasn't planning on this as an example, but this morning as Pastor Tyler pulled up to our ministry center at like 6.30, he literally walked inside to get some things for church, and when he came back out, his iPad and his wallet had been stolen out of his car. Talk about an unjust start to your Sunday. You're up early to serve Jesus, and all your stuff gets stolen. So just think about a time in your life when you have been treated unjustly. Uh, I'll tell you about one experience that will forever be etched in my mind. When I was in third grade, I was going to a small Christian school in Rapid City, South Dakota, and one afternoon while I was taking a test, my teacher pulled me out of the class and accused me of cheating. And I don't recall exactly what had caused her to think that I was cheating. I do know that my teachers consistently referred to me as very social on my report cards, which basically meant that I talked constantly. And so my guess is I was talking to a friend during class, and she assumed that I was getting answers. And so she pulled me out of the class, and I just remember being so frustrated because no matter what I said, she would not believe that I was not cheating. And I'm here to tell you still, I was not cheating. And so she marched me down to the principal's office, and if being marched to the principal's office was not bad enough, at this school, they still practiced paddling as discipline. Now, I don't know if everybody knows what paddling it is, is, but it's basically when someone, and I can't stress this enough, who is not your parent, gets to spank you with a wooden paddle. And I'm pretty sure my parents had to, like, sign a waiver so that that was okay. And so I get marched down to the principal's office. He wouldn't listen to me either. And so I got paddled that day. And the, the pain of the paddling wore off quickly. Clearly, the pain of being treated unjustly has not worn off. Because I still remember sitting in the back of my mom's minivan on the way home from school that day just so frustrated. Because I knew I had not cheated. And so think about a time in your life when you have been treated unjustly. Because here's the sobering reality. Injustice is inevitable in an imperfect world. It's inevitable. And so 
You, we, we should all be appalled and we should be disgusted by injustice, but we, what we should never be is surprised by it. Because injustice is going to be present anywhere that the love of power is prominent. Anytime there is a failure to treat anyone with the dignity due, an image bearer of God, injustice will be present. And so we should seek justice everywhere we can, but until Jesus redeems all things, injustice is going to remain. And so you and I, in varying ways and at different times in our lives, we are going to experience some degree of injustice. And how we respond when, not if, but when we experience injustice is one of the most important decisions we have to prepare for. Because if we aren't prepared to respond like Jesus, we will respond like our culture, which means at best we will long for, and at worst we will actually seek revenge. And revenge means taking action to wound someone who has wounded you. And the desire for revenge is a very natural response to being wronged. And according to 1 Peter this morning, uh, here's the problem with responding to, uh, to injustice, to being wronged with revenge. It's our big idea, which is this. Revenge ruins Christian witness. Revenge ruins Christian witness. Because the mission for which Jesus created the church is to help people learn to follow him, his reputation and our credibility as his disciples are of the utmost importance. And so if we respond to injustice with revenge, it actually tarnishes the reputation of Christ and it chips away at our credibility as well. And so this morning, uh, Peter is going to stress this point to a group of people in his culture who were living lives marked by severe injustice at the most basic human level. He's going to write to first century Greco-Roman slaves. And while they are experiencing a reality that we thankfully do not, there is still so much for us to learn from what Peter has to say to them. And so if you haven't yet and you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to come back uh, to verse 18 and finish up chapter 2 today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, all the scripture is going to be up on the screen. Uh, and we're going to call this message, Suffering Unjustly. Because while we may not be in their culture and in their situation, that is ultimately what Peter is speaking to, is how do we as followers of Jesus respond when we suffer unjustly? So look with me at verse 18. Peter starts like this. He says, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Now, I want to spend probably the most of my time on this opening verse because there is almost no way that Peter's instruction to first century slaves does not offend our modern ears, especially in light of the current racial climate in our own country. And so as a result of this offense that we feel immediate, it's like visceral almost when you read that. I remember opening up to this a couple weeks ago just to read ahead and I was like, whew, I am not fired up about that week. Okay, so we read this opening verse and you have an almost visceral response to it. And because of that, pastors tend to take one of two approaches to this verse. Uh, first, they often ignore it altogether and hope that no one ever asks a question about it. That's like the most natural response is like, I'm not going to teach this one and hopefully no one else reads it because I don't want to have to answer the question about it. 
And uh, sometimes we're just so reluctant to wade into anything uncomfortable that we want to avoid it. And the problem is, my deep conviction is, if it's in the text, you have to do something with it. You can't just ignore it. Now, a second approach has been to downplay the severity of slavery in Greco-Roman culture. And so sometimes the Greek word doulos, which we translate here as slave, will actually be translated as servant in an attempt to soften the word. And the problem with that is that runs the risk of distorting the actual cultural arrangement that was slavery in the first century. Another way to downplay this is to emphasize the sometimes significant differences between Greco-Roman slavery and early American slavery. And the truth is, there were at times very significant differences. Slavery in the first century was not race-based, for instance. Slaves were not typically kidnapped from their own homes or countries and then forced into slavery. Slaves often had a much clearer approach or path to attain their freedom. And so there were significant differences at times. The problem is, it often was not that. And so when we downplay all of it, we run the risk of minimizing the cruelty and the dehumanizing institution that slavery is in any form. And so neither ignoring it or softening does justice to the text, and I would argue neither does it honor the sizable sacrifice that was required of these people as they sought to follow Jesus in their culture and in their situation. The early church faced this issue head on, and so we have to too. And so let me just make a couple of comments uh, about this verse. Uh, First, It must be acknowledged that this verse and others like it in the New Testament were sadly used early in our country to further oppress slaves. That did happen. Now let me just say as clearly as I know how that that was and it is disgusting, deplorable, and I would argue demonic. It was also an abusive misapplication of the text itself. There is simply no attempt here by Peter to prop up the institution of slavery in this verse. Peter's attempt is just simply to shepherd those who were suffering under it. Now second, and for some reason we don't know, neither Peter here nor Paul in other places where he writes to slaves as well, neither of them denounced slavery directly. And we don't know why. They did, however, prepare the way for the abolition of it. See, the consistent vision of the Christian church that is painted throughout the New Testament set a trajectory for slavery to become obsolete because it is, in fact, incongruent with the way of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 28, Paul wrote this. He said, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Now listen to this. He says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. So there simply are not meant to be different classes of dignity in the world in general and in the church in particular. We are all one, regardless of our color, regardless of our gender, regardless of our education, regardless of whatever uh, work you do in this world. We're all one. Furthermore, it's easy for us to miss this, but what Peter prohibits here in this verse is personal revenge, not the fight for systemic change. 
So again, Peter isn't affirming slavery, and he isn't saying that people who find themselves enslaved should just simply consider that their lot in life. People who are oppressed in any way are not biblically obligated to remain in an oppressive situation. I hope we get that. Next week, we're going to talk, if this isn't uncomfortable enough, next week we'll talk about this in the context of marriage. That'll be awkward too. You're welcome. But it's so important because both of these texts, this week and next, have been used to keep oppressed people in oppressive situations. And that is an abusive misapplication of both of these texts. So they should seek freedom from those situations. And the fight to get free from oppression and the fight for systemic justice are very, very different than responding to a personal injustice from someone in a vengeful and violent manner which that is what Peter is after here. And so uh, just real quick, I want to bring Peter's principle into our current cultural moment. And I just want to acknowledge that every time I've done that through this series, it's gotten slightly uncomfortable in the room. And I think the reason for that is we have to get our heads around the fact that the Bible makes no attempt to keep us comfortable. And so if you've been in churches and you've sat under preaching that you have felt comfortable the whole time, the Bible was not either being preached in its totality or it was not being taught accurately. Because there's just a bunch in the Bible that makes our skin crawl. And that's okay. God's not bent on keeping us comfortable. So I love you. And let's talk about an implication of this in our own cultural moment. This has been a year marked by immense protest for systemic change in the area of racial equality. Now Christians who protest and fight for systemic justice are not defying Peter's principle because they're not seeking personal revenge. Now, those situations in which some in those protests have chosen to riot, meaning they have destroyed property or they have caused physical harm, can we agree that is obviously wrong? Right? Like, let me just say, if you have not heard me say this, just publicly acknowledge, rioting is wrong. Now, here's the other side of that. We can both acknowledge that rioting is in fact wrong, and we can understand that at least some, I understand that it's very complicated right now, but at least some of those riots are the result of decades of frustration bubbling to the surface because the majority culture has ignored a very real problem. And I say that because there is still this massive segment of white evangelicalism that only wants to ring one bell. And that bell is rioting is wrong. Okay, well, what about systemic racism? Rioting is wrong. But what about the oppression of an entire segment of the population? Rioting is wrong. You know what I think every time I hear someone say that? Frickin' duh. <laughs> every time. Duh, rioting is wrong. Where is this mass segment of people that are like, you know what we need to do is riot more? It's a tiny minority. So I think we're all in agreement that rioting is wrong. And it is equally wrong to stand by and ignore the intentional, strategic, systemic oppression of an entire segment of a population. 
It's like standing by and watching a kid get beat up day after day after day until he finally snaps and throws a punch and then you freak out on him because he decided to react. That's what it's like. That's what we've done. So both are a problem. Martin Luther King Jr. condemned any violence as a means of seeking justice. And he also said, a riot is the language of the unheard. So the Bible would call us both to condemn and refrain from violent, vengeful action in response to injustice. And it would also cause us to seek justice for the oppressed. Amen? We good? Good. I think there's something about the bigger room. It feels a little less awkward, actually, than when I could just see all of your eyes very, very closely. So listen, while while there are horrific forms of slavery that are very much still present in our world that we should continue to seek justice in, we, thankfully, sitting in this room, we no longer have this form of slavery present in our own culture. But that doesn't mean that, number one, we shouldn't work to understand what Peter was saying in his culture, and that, number two, we don't have something to learn from it. And so remember, the overarching principle at play in this is one of how Christians should respond when they suffer unjustly. And so our situation and our context may be different, but the experience of suffering unjustly is one shared in all cultures at all points in history. Make sense? So... That being said, two brief observations about this verse. The first is, it was a sizable show of dignity that Peter directly addressed slaves as free moral agents. It was a massive display of dignity on his part. In our own own culture, we are so far removed from them that it can be difficult for us to appreciate it, but we always have to fight to not import our culture back into theirs. Peter here dignifies the most vulnerable in his culture. While the conditions of slaves varied greatly, one thing that they all held in common was that they did not have ownership over their own bodies. And so oftentimes they were treated far more like animals than they were people. And typically in this culture, they would never have even been addressed in this manner. But Peter chooses to reject this cultural tendency and instead to address those in his culture that were rejected because they were image bearers of God. Secondly, and this part is difficult for us as well, Peter calls them to submit to their earthly masters with all reverence. Now that word reverence right there is very important. It's the exact same Greek word that was translated as fear back in verse 17 when Peter called all believers to fear God. And the reason that's important to know is that it indicates to us that what drives submission to any human authority, even a harsh and despotic one, is reverence toward God. So anytime submission is in play, there is both a direct and an indirect uh, source. And so any human authority is always the indirect source of submission. And this is why we can submit to and honor even ungodly and unjust leaders. Anytime that we submit to or we honor a human authority, we do so not because of their worthiness, uh, not, not, not because of how great they are, but because we love and trust that God sits enthroned above all human authority. And, and, and knowing what a sizable task this was, Peter goes on now to provide the motive behind this command that he gives. Look at verse 19. 
He says, For it brings favor if because of consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So God shows favor to us when we suffer unjustly. That's what Peter's saying. And I want you to notice that God promises this favor. And this word favor is the Greek word charis, which is the same word that we translate the word grace from. And there's no detail here in the text uh, regarding the exact nature of the favor that's shown. So we have to be careful when we read that to not put promises in God's mouth that he never made. So while we can't define exactly what God's favor always looks like, I can tell you an example of what it's looked like in my own life. If you've been coming to Ridgeline for very long at all, there's a good possibility you've inevitably heard me mention the difficulty of the 18 months of ministry prior to us starting our new church here in Salt Lake. And during that time, I served as the senior pastor uh, at a large existing church, one that I did not uh, plant, in uh, North Carolina. And in many ways, it was an extremely fruitful season of ministry uh, on so many different fronts. The church exploded in growth, went from 600 to 1,000 people in just a few months. The church was more financially healthy than it had been in its over 40-year history. We developed some really amazing relationships, and God did deep work in many people's hearts. Now, all that being said, it was also a season for both Pastor Tyler and myself of being on the receiving end of some of the most unjust attacks I've experienced in almost 20 years of ministry. Like, no one is ever perfect, I understand that, but before God, I can say we genuinely tried to serve Jesus and this church faithfully every single day of those 18 months. And no matter what, there was just still this onslaught of unjust attack literally day after day after day. Now here's the the thing. Out of the ashes of that mess came a deeper renewal in my own heart than I knew possible. And that is favor. And the unjust beating of those almost two years gave birth to Ridgeline Church. And that is favor. And out of the unjust suffering, Pastor Tyler started our ministry, MyXP, and we're now helping 25 churches around the country be more faithful and more fruitful, and that is favor. So there's this reassuring and comforting promise for all followers of Jesus in these verses. And the promise is this, God always sees, sides with, and shows favor to those who suffer unjustly. Always. That's a promise that you can lock away in your heart. God sees, sides with, and shows favor to those who suffer unjustly. And so when you find yourself, when you find yourself experiencing any degree of injustice, make no mistake, God will not turn a blind eye to that. He sees exactly what you're walking through. And if you choose to trust him in it, rather than retaliate and attempt to seek revenge, he will show you favor. It's not wasted. So we should not seek out suffering, but when it finds us, we can rest assured that if we endure that faithfully, God's going to reward it. Now that being said, I trust that we were all paying attention to what Peter said here, but there's no promise of blessing when our suffering in life is due to our own sin, right? Like suffering because we do something wrong is not injustice, it's consequence. And that's very different. 
But when we suffer for doing good, God sees, sides with, and promises to show us favor in response. In fact, when we suffer for doing good, Peter says that we're simply following the example of Jesus. Look at verse 21. For you were called to this. I'm going to come back to that because that's crazy. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but the start of verse 21 does say something that's kind of crazy. Peter says, for you were called to this, meaning this unjust suffering, because Christ also suffered for you. Now, we, we, we may not love this the way it feels especially, but what it does tell us is that discipleship and suffering are in fact inseparable from one another. It also tells us that the pain we experience, specifically when that pain is unjust, it isn't pointless. And I've seen that be one of the most debilitating things to people who are in a season of suffering. The belief that this is for nothing. This is meaningless and it is pointless. And if you are walking with Jesus through it, that is never true. It's not pointless. Suffering is a means by which we are formed into Christ's image. And this is why the word crucible has become synonymous with seasons of suffering. You know, in a literal sense, a crucible is a vessel that is used to melt metal with extremely high temperatures. And so as the temperature increases, the metal softens, and then it can be reformed into uh, the desired shape. And interestingly, if you look up the word crucible now, it has also come to mean a place or situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. So suffering is an uncomfortable crucible that Christ uses to form us in his image. Additionally, we're not called to anything that Jesus himself did not also endure. He suffered for us, Peter says, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now that word example comes from a Greek word which meant pattern. And in this case, it's a pattern of behavior that we're meant to follow. And it's actually the only place in the entire New Testament that this specific word is used. But in the first century, it also was used in this period to reference lines on a page that were meant to assist children in learning how to write. So remember when you were in elementary school and you were learning penmanship and how to write, you had that lined paper that just further frustrated me uh, because you, then you had to like get all the middles of all your letters in the right places and it was a whole demoralizing thing, but it was like that. The point of that line is to create this pattern for us so that we would know how to, to write. And the same thing is true in the example of Christ. Christ hasn't called us to anything. He is not also modeled for us. Think about the life of Christ. He never used the injustice he experienced to justify sin. I'm telling you, just one time, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, 
and the Pharisees are on Jesus again, and he snapped and popped one of them in the mouth, we would all understand, right? You'd be like, I get it, bro. Like, that was a lot that you had just one time if he was just like, and walked away. We would all empathize and go, I've, I get it. I've wanted to do it too. But he never, he never did that. Despite everything that he experienced, when he was insulted, which was often, he didn't retaliate in kind. When he suffered unjustly, even to the point of being crucified for sins and crimes, he never committed. He did not threaten wrath in return. Instead, do you remember what he did as he hung on the cross? What he prayed? He prayed that God would forgive them. This is the example that we've been given. And we're not just given this example so that we can live in awe of it, but so that we would live it in our own lives. And this teaches us something so critical about our own spiritual formation. Because most commonly, when we talk about spiritual formation and how we actually go about experiencing growth and change, we talk a lot about spiritual disciplines. So if you want to be formed into Christ's image, you read your Bible, you pray, you live in community. And the truth is, those are all absolutely elements in our spiritual formation. But no more than this is. And so if you're serious about your own spiritual formation... Listen to these words and run from sin, speak the truth, and never respond to insults or injustice in a vengeful manner. And just filter that all through the lens of how we all communicate with one another on social media. If you've ever wondered how in the world Jesus was capable of this behavior, because I do, and if you're paying attention, you should too. Like when you think about how like someone says something just a little sideways to you on Facebook and you're immediately like, you're just like, I'm so fired up. You got, you got your response like in the barrel ready to go. We can't even respond to like a slight on social media without wanting to be vengeful in response. And think about what Jesus went through and he never did that. And so if you hear that and you're like, how in the world was Jesus capable of this behavior? Of responding to injustice with compassion and grace and forgiveness, not just once, but day after day after day? The answer is right here in verse 23. It says, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That, that verse is everything. Jesus trusted that his father would always see would always side with, and would always show favor to those who suffer unjustly. The question is, do we believe that? Just this morning, I was reading Psalm 9, which is all about the just nature of God. And verses 7 through 10 say this, listen to this. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Listen to this part. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Now listen to this last verse. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. So ultimately, as is so often the case, the difference between seeking revenge and responding like Jesus boils down to whether or not we trust God to judge justly in our lives. That's what it comes down to. Not in our preferred timeline, not in our preferred manner, 
but do we trust and do we surrender to his? See, we retaliate because we don't trust God to execute justice. And we seek revenge because we don't trust God to execute justice. But when we learn to trust him as the always just overseer and shepherd of our souls, we can learn to follow the uncomfortable example of Jesus. And so I was thinking this morning about how hard it is for us to trust much of anything right now. Our lives have been so destabilized this year in so many different ways that it's difficult to trust anything. Like, is anybody making, like, any plans anymore? Is anyone still doing that? I had a friend text me the other day and be like, hey, are you still going to do this trip in January? I was like, that's like 900 years from now. In COVID years, who has, I just texted back right now, and he's like, yeah, that's a fair response. We just can't trust much of anything, and I think it is inevitable that, it, that at some point we run the risk of projecting that onto God. So little can be trusted right now that we're not even sure sometimes if, if God is trustworthy as well. And so I was praying this morning and I was asking God, how, how do we build trust? Because I, I mean, I understand that we can make the choice to trust, but how do we experience the actual feeling of trusting that God is good and that he is with us? And the truth is, I think it can happen in a few ways. Over time, God certainly proves himself so frequently faithful that we can learn to trust him. You can look back on your history and be like, you know what, I was in this crisis and, and God was faithful then and so I believe he doesn't change and he's going to be faithful again. That's one way for sure. I think another way is that we have a powerful experience with his presence where he removes doubt that he's with you and working and instills a deep trust. Sometimes it requires that we step out in faith in the midst of uncertainty and hopes that God will meet us there. And as he meets you in that faith, your trust is formed. And so as we close this morning, the favor that I want to pray and ask God for is that in whatever way he deems fit, he would teach us trust this morning. That even now in this very moment and in this place and space, we could experience a deeper degree of trust in God. And then I'm going to ask the band, rather than invite you to stand and to sing, I'm going to ask the band to actually sing a blessing of God's favor over you. So do me a favor and bow your heads right where you are and let me pray for us. Father, I acknowledge with your word that you are in fact trustworthy because you are always good, because you are always faithful, and because you don't change. Lord, the problem is not with whether or not you are faithful. The problem is with whether or not we trust that that's true. And so, Lord, I pray where necessary, you would help us to choose trust in the way we live and move forward. But I also pray this morning that you would help us to feel a sense of the reality that you are, in fact, trustworthy. That you are with us, that you provide, that you are enough for us. God, would you instill that in us? And I don't know how you want to do that. I don't know what each of us needs this morning, but your Holy Spirit does. And so I just pray that you would show us favor and grace this morning. And you would meet us where we are with exactly what we need from you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.